This is Ballots and Beyond, a deeper dive into Nigeria's elections with Timisholeya and Toby Lawson. Good day. This is Ballots and Beyond, an initiative of the Ideas on Traps podcast. It's a a hopefully in-depth look at a different issue or series of issues almost daily in the run-up to Nigeria's federal elections later this month of February 2023. The idea is a non-partisan view at a series of issues that we think should really concern whoever happens to win you know, Nigeria's top job, president of the Federal Republic of Nigeria and trying to not shape the debate, but create some reference terms for things that should be discussed. Um, today, we have Faye me, Double F on Twitter, who has kindly agreed to come on and give us some of his insights as a person who has paid a great deal of attention to the policy arena of Nigeria in a sustained way. I'm Timmy Chalair. I build infrastructure here in Lagos. My co-host is Toby Lawson. Yeah, I would like to start with you is because uh, he's such a keen observer, like you said in the intro of Nigeria's political space in all its ramifications. And, you know, a bit of a retrospective because 2015 was such a hopeful year uh, in court, you know, like we had a change of government for the first time in 16 years. The government had a lot of goodwill. And, you know, like Nigerians were hopeful. So I'm just wondering what your take is on how it went so spectacularly wrong in the sense that the popular sentiments even does not accommodate what the government can say it did right. So how did it get so wrong? Okay, thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. I think to go straight into that question, hindsight is wonderful, you know, and if we don't look back at our own mistakes or our own thinking, we probably can't get better. So I think the number one lesson looking back is that we underestimated how much the person and the character, the temperament, the mindset, you know, the education of whoever is president, how much that can affect the cause of events in Nigeria. It sounds obvious now, you know, Nigeria is barely in 23 years of the longest period of sustained democracy we've had. We are novices at this stuff, you know, we're young democracy, however you try to measure it. So it should be obvious that we are still at the point whereby institutions are not anywhere near where we might like them to be such that we can survive the character, the temperament, you know, the person of whoever is president. So I think that is key in the sense that underestimating how much of the person who is actually sitting in the office of the president, how much that person can actually have an effect on the course of events in Nigeria. Where I think I missed this and where I think I had a blind spot to was the fact that I thought, hey, you know, Wari is who he is. You know, there were serious questions around him. What had he done with himself in 30 years out of office? But where I thought it might be mitigated is in the sense that, okay, even if you have Buhari as the person and you have all this risk around him, if you have a team around him, 
if you have a team of people who are slightly maybe a bit more reasonable, more open-minded, that sort of thing, maybe it could be a countervailing force in the sense of him not being able to take Nigeria to the exact place he wanted to or the ideas he had in his mind. So I think in general, you know, we had... Like you said, 2015 was very, very hopeful. I was very, very hopeful. I mean, being able to remove an incumbent government, which people had, you know, good grounds for being angry at, you know, corruption at that point in time was quite, it it was a daily story in the papers, government that seemed a bit feckless and all that kind of stuff. And then you had this kind of guy who just came and built a team, a coalition to get him into office, something. And the key thing is something he was not able to do on his own several attempts before that. So you probably thought that, oh, 2015, okay, Buhari had tried in 2011, 2007, 2003. He could never do it alone. So now you have Buhari Plus, you know, all these people who are around him who you might say are slightly more reasonable and somehow some magic would happen in the sense that his worst successes would be curbed and maybe we'll get a... I mean, the summary is that it's not happened like that. And I think something Timmy mentioned earlier was that six months when nothing happened. I think for me, that was just the biggest indicator that things had gone wrong. Because if you had a party that campaigned as a team, you know, people spoke on behalf of Bihari, Buhari during the campaign. You had El Rufai, you had Tenobu, you had Fahimi, you had all these people, you know, who were part of his team. Right now, for him to get into office... And then pull out that wild card, right? Like it came out of nowhere. And I know for a fact that so many people who campaigned for him, who had done so much of the work, they were completely blindsided by the idea of not naming ministers for six months. Like a lot of people heard about it for the first time when he wrote that opinion piece in the Washington Post. And towards the end of the piece, there was a casual line when he said, when ministers are finally announced in, I think he said October, in the piece, invariably, that didn't even happen. I think they, they finally got announced in December or something, or they took office in December. A lot of people heard about it for the first time in that piece when it was in the US. So you might say the scales fell off my eyes at that point in time, whereby somebody could be elected as part of a team with the effort of a group of people who you might feel were a bit more reasonable or more open-minded and that sort of thing. The person, once that person is ensconced in Asu Rock, all better off. Right, it comes down to who that person is, and again, we are not yet a democracy that can be immune to the character of the president. We will probably get there in the end, where you know institutions might be strong enough to be a countervailing force against him, but you know, we're not yet there. And invariably, what has happened over the last eight years is that Buhari has been able to impose what he thinks are his ideas on the country to quite a great extent. Where those ideas have failed, he has wasted the country's time. I mean, some of them obviously haven't gone to plan, but the country's time has still been wasted. Nothing else has been happening. I think the best example of this is the border closure, right? So we closed the borders for, what, a year or so more? Nothing happened. It was just a waste of time. Prices went up, and then all the reasons that were being retrofitted to the argument, saying, oh, it was a way to catch smugglers, it was a way to stop arms smuggling, it was a way to stop drug smuggling. And even when we got to the point where people started saying crazy stuff like China closes borders and China is now great, you know, those kind of things. All those things, none of those things came close to happening. In the end, we opened the borders, you know, but it was for no reason, just pure damage. You know, again, we've seen this again with the currency change in the sense that once he's been given an idea, the fact that, oh, we could switch the currency to catch out some thieves who are hiding Naira notes in their homes or to, to stymie politicians who are trying to buy the election on election day. If we switch the currency, we can stop them. 
none of that is going to happen. We've seen how the chaos with God knows what economic damage this has done now to the country. So all of these things in the sense that he has a worldview and even at the cost of expensive and extreme failure, we are going to have to go through those ideas with him and then maybe he'll change it. So I think the summary of the, my answer to your question is that we were very hopeful. We all thought something good could happen in 2015, but I think with the benefit of hindsight, we can see that the person and the character of who is the leader matters far more than anything that is written in any policy document or anything anyway. Yeah, I'll go back again to 2015 just a bit. There was something I think you tweeted, you know, which I want to relate to your last point about his ideas and how this is not a Buari podcast, by the way, so I promise I'll move on very quickly. So about his ideas and how we sort of like retrofit. And I mean, citizens, we, we play along with these things. We sort of retrofit reasons for some very terrible policies. What you said at the time is, oh, we finally have a president that has wanted the job, you know, for a while. You know, he's run for president multiple times. How much do you think wanting the job affects your ability to execute, right? Having a plan, you know, having ideas, knowing what the job is about, or they are just two very disconnected things. Because we can say the same for at least one of the presidential candidates who has also run many times. And one of the things that people who like him seem to say is that, oh, he has experience, uh, he has thought about a problem, and he will know what to do from day one. You know, So are we making the same mistake? Well, I think this is uh, quite an interesting one. This cycle is going to be an interesting one. So, you know, we know Ateko has wanted a job for a long time. He first ran for president in 1992. So there's no doubt about that. Tinubu's one is a bit more interesting in the sense that it's a kind of departure from the typical Nigerian politician who wants the job. So I guess, you know, with Buhari, he won the job, but the evidence of him wanting the job was always mainly in him running for office. You know, so you infer that obviously he wants the job because he ran in 2003, he ran in 2007, he ran in 2011, and then he ran again in 2015. You know, so you can infer from that that okay, he clearly wants the job rather than say maybe someone who runs once, loses, and then disappears from the scene. Again, we can also infer the same from Atiku in the sense that he's been running for quite a while. I mean, he obviously wants the job. The difference in this case around with Tenumbo is the fact that he's saying that not just so much that he wants the job, but that it's his turn. Right now, that part of it is almost kind of like it's always been the quiet part of Nigerian politics. Never really said out loud. All the time that Buhari said he wanted the job, he never actually said it was his turn. Even Atiku has never actually said it's his turn. He just wants to run. You know. So to answer your question, how much does wanting the job? So there are two parts of it, right? The part that we infer from someone, he wants the job. He's been running several times. Obviously, he wants the job. And then somebody explicitly saying it that. He wants the job that because it's his time, it's his turn or something. Those are two different things. It's harder to put Peter B into any category. You know, he seems to be riding a wave more. So you might say that maybe he wants the job, but then the wave of support has actually lifted him to the point where he's maybe a viable candidate, that sort of thing. In summary, I'll probably say in the Nigerian context, it's kind of overrated. 
People want the job for all sorts of reasons. And if anything, again, we must always learn from hard, real-life experience. If anything, I think we can see that Buhari's wanting the job all those times. I mean, he wanted, he ran four times, you know, really. What he's done in office, we can fairly reasonably conclude that he didn't really have any particular ideas. He just has a narrow set of ideas. The exchange rate must be so-and-so. He had maybe some ideas around security. He had some ideas about the oil industry. That's all. They're just a set of fixed ideas that were that have not been updated by reality over time. So him wanting the job, you can say in this case, it was kind of like overrated. It wasn't like he ran. He maybe went back, updated his ideas, you know, thought about things a bit better. He was just a simple person running. So wanting the job in Nigeria, I think my summary will be that it's often more an ego trip. And to be fair, this is not unique to Nigeria. Positions everywhere, you have to have an ego to be able to say, oh, I'm the best man to be leader of my country with millions of citizens or something. But to a larger extent, I think in Nigeria, it's more of an ego trip in the sense that people just think that them, who, who they are, is the best qualification for the job rather than actually being prepared or doing any kind of preparation. That's all. So you'll be surprised that a lot of these people who actually want the job, they don't have any preparation. They don't have any detailed plans in the, in the work. They are selling themselves, you know, as whatever it is. Sorry to interrupt, but just because, uh, again, I share Tubi's interest not to make it a PMB podcast, but to what extent do you think he simply just wanted to vindicate the first time where he was removed in a coup? And basically, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I think, I think, I mean, it's a big part, you know. I mean, I, I forget that quote now. Yeah, I can't remember who said it. Maybe it was Sigmund Freud or something. Something about how a great deal of change in the world or something has been affected by men with repressed sexual desires or something like, or something like that, you know. I mean, people have all kinds of motivations. And in his own case, you know, as base as that motivation might be, it was the biggest driving force for him. It always shocked me just like how it was like you would always be able to find an Economist or Times or Daily Times article for some economic crisis we were having Mm -hmm. from his previous term where he had done the same thing again, despite the fact that it was, you know, almost 40 years later and the world had changed vastly. It didn't work that time. It didn't work this time either, but probably for different reasons each time. I think I think he convinced himself that it didn't work the last time because he didn't have time. You know, like he was kicked out of office very quickly. So he just sat on that. Like you said, it's remarkable. Somebody has been sharing some old Daily Times front pages of 83 or 84 during the currency change. It descended into a crisis, just as it is now. It's remarkable. The man is replaying all his old hits. And he just feels like it didn't work the last time because I didn't have time. Now that I have time it will work better, you know, close the border again, obviously at great cost to the country, that's all. So, yes, it probably accounts for the vast majority of his motivation, if not everything. The sense that, you know, I didn't finish the job the last time, now I've come to do it. So in, in the sense of, like, looking forward, looking back a little bit more recently than 2015, you know, Buhari is doing his, what we're going to call, exit interviews at the moment, right? And he is saying that he has done his best, and that not everything can be or should be expected to be achieved in one administration. He is the leader of our country, so I'm not going to take like a mocking tone, etc. If he says he's done his best, maybe he has done his best and he's the person that we picked. In both elections, I don't think anyone can fault that he really did win. Whatever rigging, etc., right? You know, he won. He won both times. Like, he is who we picked and he has done his best. 
and you mentioned this question of the character of the person, right? And so you, you said that the most important things are character and temperament. How do we look for that in the next person? Like if it really, if we cannot depend upon their policy statements, and let's be honest with at least two of them, and I think maybe three of the four that are not really national candidates, right? We don't have the clearest view necessarily about biography. If what you say is the most important quality to look for is an intangible one, then how are people supposed to make a decision? It's a really good question, you know, and I'll probably say that at the risk of overcorrecting for Buhari's eight years, if you were to ask me, I'll probably say the most important thing to look for is curiosity. A certain level of curiosity in who the president is. You know, like I said, let's assume that we are correcting for Buhari, the next person. If anything has been his biggest character for is his lack of curiosity. I, I think I've mentioned this a few times, maybe to Toby elsewhere, but I always say this, right? The easiest job for a Nigerian leader to get once they leave office is to be an election monitor. These jobs, they land on your laps. So you might have somebody like, say, the Qatar Center or something. There's an election going on in Malawi, Zimbabwe, or somewhere across the African continent. They have monitors. They're going to go there just to deliver a report for that election. All they want to do is then they then need somebody to kind of like just stand... Elder statesman. Exactly. So all they'll do is they'll fly you out. And the AU does it all the time. Exactly. Exactly. They will, you know, they will basically just put you at one polling station and then have you to, you know, speak to the media after. It's an easy job, but you get it. That lack of curiosity has obviously played out in his eight years in office. Now, imagine today that something was going on in the country, right? I mean, how do you think Buhari can break out of his bubble in Aso Rock to find information by himself. I try to think of it, I don't know. Maybe he picks up a newspaper or maybe he watches TV. But again, all of this is heavily curated stuff. Right? So things like with NSARS, for example, when he came out to finally give a speech to the country, you could tell that this was someone who had only received one type of information on NSARS. And it was people telling him that this is a threat to your government. This is a threat to national stability. This is a, is a potentially regime change situation, that sort of thing, which is why he then came out, gave that speech and said, basically saying, I'm warning you guys, end this stuff now or else. And that was it. You know, So somebody has to display a certain level of curiosity, just of Things around the world. Again, you see all the stuff during the campaign that, you know, sort of like was swept under the carpet, but where he, he was re referring to Germany as West Germany, that sort of thing. You know, again, with the benefit of hindsight, all those things are red flags, you know, but just basically evidence that the person is aware of what is going on. Because look, Nigeria is confronting some serious issues. Fundamentally, I mean, to use one big one, fundamentally, we are looking, as I tell people now, if you squint, you can see the end of oil in sight, right? So fundamentally, we are facing an existential issue as a country. Well, not so much the people, but the government itself, right? We are going to stop being a petrol state at some point in the next couple of decades. We have to... We're barely one now. Oil, oil production exactly. has half. Exactly. Like, exactly. Oil can barely even pay salaries right now. What do we want to be in the world, you know, when we no longer have oil to sell? to the world, to make, even if it's just some foreign exchange. What do we want to be? What kind of country do we want to be? What do we want to sell to the world? What do we want to be known for? 
that kind of these are large questions and you know you have to have a leader who is looking around the world and seeing what a lot of countries are doing so you can see even places like dubai for example or abu dhabi qatar all these countries right they are dealing with this question a lot of them are heavy on clean energy already dubai has made its better with tourism and maybe legal services and all those kind of things you know there are different places around the world and they're thinking about this question. We don't even have to answer it, but we have to basically have a leader who can engage in such a debate and at least moderate the debate on a national level and be aware that this is what is going on in the world. This is what Nigeria is now. And this is what Nigeria might be. And how do we bridge the gap between where we are, and where we need to be in, in future? So we can't get around curiosity. A leader who refreshes himself, who seeks out information outside of his own bubble. Because you can be so easily captured. Asorok is pretty much like a prison. If you don't break out of that bubble, if you don't make the effort to get out of there by yourself, you will just be a slave to whatever information is fed to you. I, I mean, one of the things we talked about information quite a bit was that Nigeria is the product of global currents. You know, so many things happen in the country that we just think that, oh, it just happened within Nigeria. But it was basically things that started elsewhere. We have so many elephants, particularly the middle belt of Nigeria and in what is now Adamawa State. Loads of them. Europeans decided they wanted ivory, and we just decimated all those elephants. I mean, it was in a very, very short period of time, all these elephants would just disappear. They were killed because we were selling ivory. That's that sort of thing. So that, that's just a, an example whereby if you don't plug that into the global current of what was happening, you might just think that, oh, maybe Nigeria just went through a crazy period when Nigerians just started killing elephants for no reason, and then now there are barely any, any elephants. The same thing with palm. You know, Europeans got richer. And then they decided that, oh, one of the things they had disposable income to spend on was personal hygiene. And this drove demand for things like soaps. You know, people started having baths, cleaning themselves, taking out. And that demand for palm just basically spread to Nigeria. And all of a sudden, you get people who became really rich. And it basically upended the old order, you know, whereby people could not make money from something other than slavery. And it, it kind of eased the transition away from slavery to palm oil. So you had people like Jaja or Bupopo, who was previously a slave, but then became a multi-billionaire from selling palm. So, you know, over and over again, we've seen so many things happen like this because history happens to Nigeria. A bird can flap its wings somewhere in North America and we start to feel the effects over here. So we have to have a leader who can be that conscious of knowing Nigeria's place in the sense that we are a country in West Africa. We're not really on the way to anywhere. But we have to also understand that a breakthrough in clean energy, for example, can accelerate the end of oil. You know, we might think that, oh, we've got maybe a couple of decades, but nuclear fusion, for example, if it happens and it becomes commercial, that sort of thing, it completely transforms the Nigerian government as it is today. We have to pay attention. Okay. So, so I think, yeah, curiosity definitely is the one character trait I'll look for. And speaking of character, I know Timmy is itching to move to policy questions. I promise this is my last one. I want to speak briefly on the character of the supporting cast here, because we look at the character of, you know, the main guy, the, the person running for president. So, like, there's this thing, I don't know, maybe it's unique to Nigerian politics, probably not, of people making themselves the mere reflection, regardless of their history, their precedents, or even characters they've been previously associated with. So like with Buhari, you had people who had said 
other things, who had other ideas in the past and started working for him or associated with him, repeating his ideas, basically, however wrong or egregious. So, like, you understand that kind of behavior. Is it strategic or is it something that is just endemic to Nigerian politics or the way the political system or the party system works in Nigeria, being personality-driven? You know, what, what are your thoughts? I think it's probably not unique to Nigeria, but it's definitely worse in Nigeria. It's a lot worse in Nigeria. And it goes back to the initial point we were talking about in the sense that we don't have any institutions that can survive who the president is, you know. The Nigerian president is a wealth-generating machine. Even if you forget everything else, you know, the Nigerian president can make you rich in ways that you cannot imagine, you know. So just being that wealth-generating machine alone can cause people to turn themselves into a mirror of that person, right? So in that sense, again, you know, we don't have institutions that can withstand or survive the president. The president can order things to happen or more like he can stop things from happening. You know, the the president's negative powers are, are very, very strong. Right, the negative powers are stronger than the positive powers. So the president, for example, cannot say maybe he visits uh, Moritala Mohammed Airport and he says the toilets are not working and then he orders that all the toilets will be working and be clean. You know, we can probably get clean toilets for a few months or a couple of months. We, we all remember how Oshibaju flew over a papa in a helicopter and then they ordered that things should be stopped and, he, and you know, I mean, it went on for years that sort of thing. But if the president decides that you are not going to get, they can shut down your business or something. You know, so it's kind of like negative power is much more powerful than any kind of positive power. And, in, and that negative power can make people rich. You can use take out your competition, that sort of thing. So I think that's one reason why just the fact that the president is somebody who can create wealth in a way for people that almost kind of like nothing else can do. You know, that allows people to turn themselves into a mirror of, you know, his personality driven asset. But here's the thing. There are two parts to it. Right. The second part is, I always repeat this quote a friend of mine said, you know, it says in Nigeria, power is qualitative, it's not quantitative. Oh, sorry, sorry, it's quantitative, not qualitative. Right. And essentially what I was trying to say was, if you have 24 hours of power available in a day, that power has to be wielded. If the president is incapable of wielding it, then alternative power centers will spring up all around and people will be wielding power on the president's behalf. Right. And the best example of this is sickness. And we saw all of this happening. When Buhari was ill, when he was out of the country, people were wielding power on his behalf. The kind of power centers, you had chief of staff, you had uh, national security advisor, you had central bank, you had legal vice president, you have even first lady, you know, all those kind of things, right? And it became worse because even though Buhari got better health-wise, but the way he has kept himself healthy is by not exerting himself too much. You know, so if he was working nine to five before he got ill, we can take it that he's working maybe 12 to two or something now, you know, so he's had to reduce his workload quite a bit. And all that space, because the power is there, right? All that space has been filled by all kinds of people, little people, you know, building up, you know, their little empires everywhere. So to your question, I think the second scenario is probably where you might say the cast of characters are a lot more important in the sense that if the president is fit and healthy, then his advisors probably don't matter much. You know, they're just going to be powerful to what he's doing. And we can say that, you know, I mean, whatever the president's character is, whatever the president's ideas are, that's what these people will be powerful to. However, 
if the president turns out to be somebody who is not very healthy, then we have to pay attention to his cast of characters around him because those people that will come to the wield a lot more power in their own right because the president is unable to. If the president is hospital or the president is ill, he can't handle a heavy workload, then whoever is advisor that will start to get more power. So in that sense, you know, I, I think it matters. So it's kind of like a paradoxical situation or, or an ironical situation in the sense that you have a strong president, if he's healed and healthy, if he's, you know, if he's fit and all that, then pretty much everyone is rowing in the same direction. And we saw a lot of this with Obasanjo. Obasanjo had a heavy workload. I mean, he used to stay up to 2 a.m., woke up very early, famously to play squash, that sort of thing. You know, so you could tell that very few people were addicting him or doing things within his government that you could probably say they were working across purposes. So he was a sort of strong character in that sense. So his reformers were okay. They were decent in the sense that Soludo once told me how AFC came about. And he basically said it was at an Asso Rock prayer meeting one morning and that he came, he went to Obasanjo with the idea that we need to have a kind of like a, a DFI effectively an African DFI, and the space was there for Nigeria to fill that gap rather than constantly rely. And, and you know, and he said Obasanjo brought into it. But he said the key thing, or the most important thing that actually Obasanjo did was that he made available the presidential jet to him and said, look, I'm backing you, take the presidential jet. And that completely changed the way he was able to push that idea to buy support across Africa. And it was a very simple thing in the sense that having the presidential jet meant that he could fly to Malawi, Zambia and say Zimbabwe touched down those three countries in one day, right? Also, and presumably the credibility of landing exactly, in exactly, jet, right? Exactly. And he said that once you landed in an African country and the plane had the seal of the president of Nigeria, people took you seriously. Unlike, say, you came on a commercial jet and you came on your own and you say, oh, we're trying to, you know, like the president might not even agree to see you. But the fact that you are landing and the plane says, president of the Federal Republic of Nigeria, they take you seriously, almost as if it was the president himself that was coming there. And he said that made his life so much easier in the sense that when he was going around lobbying, he was just going around all these countries and people were like, yeah, okay, well, no problem. Since Obasanjo sent you, they were on board, that kind of thing. And it made it so much quicker. If he had been going on his own, maybe they would still be discussing the thing today. So I think to summarize, if the president is healthy, if he's fit, you know, if he has that thing that Jefferson spoke about in the Federalist Papers, that energy in the executive is the leading indicator of good governance. If the president has that energy, then his character matters a lot. It matters a lot more to us in terms of who he is, whatever. If the president is old, if he's tired, if he can't really keep up with the demands of the job, and there's nothing like the job, because as we've seen with Buhari, you know, you are in retirement effectively for 30 years, you get into Asorok, it's a completely different ballgame. When you're in retirement, you can travel to Indonesia because you want to. You don't have to go there. You don't have to go if you don't want to. When you are president, you have to go to Indonesia because there's a G20 meeting there and you, are, and you have to attend. And it's a 16-hour or 14-hour or 12-hour flight or whatever. You have to go. Or you have to go to Tokyo. When you're in retirement, you don't have to go to Tokyo. But when you are president, you have to go to Tokyo because there's a Japan-Africa summit and you have to be there in person. And then you fly maybe 15, 16 hours and jet lag is nine hours ahead, you lose a day or, you know, those kind of things. So the demands of the job, they are quite different from when you are just in privacy to when you're actually in office. So if the president physically is unable to meet those demands of, of the demands that the office will place on them, then we have a serious issue 
and then we have to then focus on a lot of the people who are around him because those people will now be able to be free agents effectively to run their own shops and push out their own ideas even if it's contradictory to the ideas of another power base in the government which is true but you mentioned it earlier do you think that to some extent there's a search to overcorrect when looking at the new prospective president for the failures, which even he admits, let's be honest, of this current incumbent and the, the last president. Well, I, I think, to be honest, I, again, I don't think that's unique to us. You know, democracies always do the same. You get a president who is, quote-unquote, too exciting. People then want somebody who is boring. Or you get a president who is boring, and then they want somebody who is exciting. And you can see him. I mean, you can use America. Yeah, we can use America. Yeah, you know, George Bush, he had a way of stumbling over his words and people made so much fun of him that sort of thing and then from there america obviously seduced by the college professor if you like who was as eloquent as any uh, very eloquent you know and eight years after yeah. him maybe people felt like they had been lectured for eight years so that then led people to go and say, oh let's try out this crazy crazy guy from all those kind of things and then now after four years yeah now back to sort of like we tried and tested steady and that sort of thing and you yeah, can see the uk as well for example Boris was, whatever else you might say about him, his personal life was so chaotic. Yeah. And now we have the prima proper Rishi Sunak. Probably never done the wrong thing in his life. His, his whole life has been set up for, for this kind of job, effectively, you know. Good kid, goes to all the best schools, that sort of thing, always top of his class. So, you know, democracy is that kind of thing. It always happens that way. And voters are, no offense, but we voters are hardly the smartest people in the world. We tend to... Certainly not collectively. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I did want to talk a little bit about uh, all of our guests, from Dr. Andrew Nevin to Fola, and then now you have brought up this question of essentially what, looking at the failure of oil, what does Nigeria export, right? Dr. Andrew Nevin lent a lot on diaspora. He actually boldly said the statement, and this is the chief economist of PwC West Africa, he said that without diaspora remittances, he feels that the Nigerian economy would have founded and failed in the context of the halving of oil revenue, right? Fola leaned heavily on, like, Nigeria needs to figure out what it's going to export. It's a rather unstructured question. I'm just bringing up the topic because you will then also say Nigeria needs to think of its place in the world and what it will send out into the world, what it will export. Realistically, if Nigeria is not to be a one-trick pony any longer, then what's the other pony? Is it the diaspora? Is it we educate people and we send them abroad? Like New York, there are countries that have had that kind of economy. Like one thinks about the Philippines most obviously, right? But is that really realistic? Like, you know how it is. I'm talking to you and you're already in the abroad. You know the challenges there. You know, like the idea of the investment that someone who doesn't live here, someone who is raising their children abroad will have in sending money back here. Does that work? Like, is that a viable thing, in your opinion? Well, I, I, I think, you know, to start off with our last point, I think we have to be aware of the limits of exporting Nigerians, purely because of our numbers and the fact that Nigeria would overwhelm any visa policy or any visa idea that any country has in a short period of time. I mean, if you remember, you know, when the domestic visa lottery started in America, Nigeria was one of the first countries to exhaust its quota. Exactly, it ceased to be eligible. Right? Exactly, Nigeria ceased to be eligible, and the program still ran for maybe a decade after that, even after Nigeria stopped it. You know, so you can see those kind of things. 
one of the reasons why Nigerians don't have visa-free access to so many places is just because if you do that, the sheer numbers from Nigeria will just pretty much overwhelm everything. So, so I think we have to be able to realize that, first of all, a strategy like that will have limits. And people will always want to pick the cream of the crop of Nigeria. So they want to pick the absolute best and then not want to have to deal with anything. So, but, but I think to answer the larger question, we have to be mindful of our history. History is strong. It weighs heavily on Nigeria. And we have been a commodity play for centuries. And again, I always tell people that this is a sensitive topic, but if you stay with me and bear with me, we can make the argument that slavery was a commodity play in the sense that it was just capturing people and sending them abroad. As I always say, nobody gave a slave a bath, dressed him in nice clothes, and maybe put jewelry on him before exporting so to, to that they could get a better value from him. It was literally capture, sell, and, and then the Europeans will come, they'll pick the ones they want. They'll look at some people and say, oh, this one maybe has a bad leg or something. We're not taking that one. And that was it. So when you look at it in that sense, it was really a commodity play, just basically taking human beings in their rawest form and just sending them elsewhere. People who exported them probably had no idea where they were even sending them to. It was effectively a commodity play. And we know that this went on at least for 400 years. That's the part we know. And then we transitioned from that, straight out of that, into palm oil, which is another commodity play. Again, like I mentioned earlier, the demand for which was driven mostly by Europeans getting retired and deciding that they had money to spend on hygiene and all kinds of derivatives of palm oil. And then after palm oil, we then transitioned into crude oil. Again, this story is more familiar, so it doesn't need retelling, but in summary, we have been a country who have for a long time been exporting crude oil and importing refined products. So we have to think about the fact that our history weighs heavily on us as a country that has been a commodity player for centuries. We have to break that cycle, you know, and whatever is coming next after crude oil, if we leave this question to the politicians, and this is why a podcast like this is interesting, that we try and strip away what it is that politicians are focusing on for their own short-term game and actually try to get to the nub of the issue. Because if we leave this as question for politicians, they are going to try and look for the next thing they can dig out of the ground and export. So maybe lithium for electric vehicles or something, and they find it in one place, and then the government steps in, you know, and they start exporting that or that kind of thing. But fundamentally, we have to be a place where people can find the skill to make stuff that they need. And to do that, we have to invest in our human capital. You know, Toby has read Joe Stodwell, How Asia Works. But one of my favorite stories in that book was the fact that a lot of people in Asia and Korea and China began in agriculture, but they focused the agricultural work on the parts of agriculture that required a lot of attention to detail. Vegetables, you know, those kind of things whereby you couldn't really use mass tractors or weapons to do that kind of thing. Somebody still had to look at the vegetables or look at the way they were planted or just look at how they were developing and before maybe harvested that sort of thing. Now, the argument he made in the book, which I found pretty convincing, is that when the time for factories came, people who had built up all those attention to detail skills could transition very easily into factory work, which required the same skill. So basically, the fundamental skill here was attention to detail, right? And you could actually use that on the farm and you could use it in a factory. I visited Vietnam about uh, four years ago now, and we were just walking around in Hanoi, you know, just looking around. And I saw the people who are trimming the flowers, the hedges and all those kind of things. And you'll see these people, they will trim, 
take five steps back, look at what they were doing, go back to it again, trip, and they were just doing it over and over again, basically trying to see, oh, is there a leaf hanging out somewhere there? Again, it might seem like a trivial issue, but that attention to detail, you know, if you take somebody who spends one hour trimming a hedge, checking their own work, making sure that they were doing it right, that person can transition easily into a factory. The people who have the skills that you're talking about on the African continent, it's the Kenyans, right? It's Tanzanians, it's East Africans. It's not It's not us. It's not us, yeah. And I think that's where we need to get to. We need to invest in a base level of skills for our people and literacy. And this is not just being able to do times table or read, you know, stuff. But basically, people need to be able to to have a basic level of skills whereby if somebody wants to set up a factory in Nigeria today, he looks at the quality of labor available and he thinks that, hmm, I don't need to do too much work here to bring people up to speed. Because the factory will probably be unique. If you're a factory making sneakers, for example, you definitely have to do some level of training for your staff. But the question is how much, you know, if you are taking somebody who can barely understand anything, or who cannot reason even at the basic level, and then you're not trying to break them, that will cost you a lot of money. To use the example of the famous Henry Ford policy of paying workers $5 a day, he had looked at the numbers and he realized that every year he was going through maybe about 20,000 staff, even though at any given point in time, he only had maybe about 4,000 people. So the churn was quite high. So what he did was say, you know what, this was costing too much. So effectively, you are training 16,000 people and they leave. You know, you are spending a lot of money training people and they leave. So, so, okay, what we need to do here is find a way to retain people and then drop down that cost of training because that was killing us. So if we raise the cost of labor to $5, people will be more incentivized to stay. And then when we train them, we know that we can have them for much longer so they can pay back the cost of their training, that sort of thing. So, you know, Nigeria has to be a place whereby we do the basic level. We bring our people up to a certain level of cognitive skills, of literacy, of understanding, just basically being able to reason such that if somebody wanted to bring a factory or to produce something in Nigeria and he comes and he just looks at the level of skills available in the country and he says, if I go to Nigeria, I might need to spend maybe $10 million on training compared to if I go to China and I only need to spend $1 million on training that sort of thing, and then you'll go to China. But if we bring down that cost, you know, that basic cost, and that and this is the cost whereby we fundamentally spend money, get out there and educate people to a certain level. And this is not just school education, but basically all kinds of critical thinking, all kinds of, just to raise the floor of our human capital. And I think if I was to put it in one sentence, I think that would be it, that we need to raise the floor of our human capital such that we can then become a country that is a base for making all kinds of things, you know, all kinds of things, all kinds of different things. And then that way we'll probably build a more sustainable future because it is built on the fact that we have that human capital that is adaptable, that can do so many different things rather than just digging stuff out of the ground and hoping for some buyers to turn up. I'm trying to dig down a little on this, which is that is that something that the president should be involved in? I'm trying to disentangle. Are you speaking about employment and industry and maybe industrial policy, or are you talking purely about education or some nexus that's intertwined of those two things? Like, I agree with what you're saying. I just don't like. I don't immediately necessarily agree that that's a job for the president. 
Well, yeah. So, so I think the challenge here is that the reason why it's a, it's a job for maybe not just but a federal job, and I'll use an example, is that we have Nigeria today, right? And the variation within Nigeria is almost worse than the variation between even Nigeria and other countries in the sense that the quality of education in the country is so variable. Lagos is probably bad, you know, other places are bad, but, you know, if you go to other different parts of Nigeria, people are not even learning anything at all. Kids are not even in school at all. So a lot of states have less than zero capacity to actually raise the floor of their human capital. They don't care. Governors don't care. It's too much of a long-term issue for them. They're dealing four-year cycles in the sense that elections are every four years. So they probably don't have any incentive to focus on something whereby the results will show up in 10, 15 years' time. So if we were to leave it as we are today, especially things like primary education, which is the job of the states, we're going to be here for a long time because the quality we're going to get is so variable. And I don't want to stigmatize any states, but when you look at numbers, for example, Yobe State has terrible education outcomes, right? So if we leave things as they are, then you are going to get people coming out of Yobe who are not getting anywhere near the level of skills as people coming out of Anambra, or maybe you'll go or Lagos, or even maybe Kaduna or somewhere else. The variability will be so much, right, that we will constantly be chasing our own tail. In that sense, the federal government can mobilize the resources, you know, it can mobilize the funding, and it can mobilize the will to take charge of raising that thing and doing it at a national level such that you reduce that variability in the sense that a kid in Yobe and a kid in Ogo have at least the same level of opportunity to access the same level. And here's where I want to use an example. Now, we know that Spain, right? Spain had an empire. It was a fairly rich country, you know, in the 19th century, at least to a certain extent. You had colonies, which is straight, you know, you got a lot of gold and all that kind of stuff. Now, the American Civil War ended, what, 1865? You know, and effectively, that was when the slaves were freed. And before then, obviously, the policy of slaveholders was to ensure that the slaves got no education at all because for them an educated slave was a threat you run away or you kill you or something you know so they basically kept black people not just in slavery but uneducated now by 1900 right so this is what 35 years after the end of the american civil war and emancipation the level of literacy among blacks in america was higher than in spain now, it's a mind-blowing thing when I first heard about it, but basically in 35 years, America had raised the floor of Blacks who are coming out of servitude, you know, who had come out of bonding, higher than the level of a country like Spain, which had had an empire. And one of the things they did was you had, effectively, at the end of the Civil War, you had almost kind of like two countries, right? So you had a lot of free Black people, uneducated, poor down South, and the North, which was slightly more enlightened and that sort of thing. And... It was the federal government that took the charge of that project and said, we're just going to send teachers down south and just educate them. And W.E., you know, Webb Du Bois, he called it the finest thing America had ever done in the sense that when he saw that program, basically like just sending teachers down south, educating people as much as they could. Now, again, obviously, America did a lot of other stuff. This is not to downplay anything else, but just that particular level that produced results in 35 years is doable. And you could have left it for southern states to try and educate the black people who are now free. They would probably still be here today. You know, some people might have an incentive to do it. Some might not have an ex-slaveholder lobby who will try and suppress any kind of raising of that floor of the human capital. 
you know, people, what kind of people had the incentives to, to stop black people getting an education, they felt they would compete with them. But the federal government, the US federal government was able to do it as a kind of like overarching disinterested party and he achieved something in doing so. Like the NYSC plan that they always have, which is, you know, any humanities graduates, they'd send them to be teachers in far-flung places. Are you saying that that has been poorly implemented? Because like that's the crux of the idea that you're talking about, which is you graduate from the University of Ibarra, and then they say that for a year, you have to go to a school in Yube. And that seems like the readiest group of available people to do this. And it seems like at least that's the germ of the idea about what you're talking about. So is it that they haven't put resources behind it or has it just not worked? Well, in theory, yes. But, you know, the AMIC thing, like I always try to remind people, like, it's back to front. So you have kids are born and whether they get an education or not is purely down to where they are born because education is a devolved matter. So responsibility of state. So if you are born in Yobe, if you are born in Edo State now, for example, Edo State is doing some really amazing work. Your chances of getting an education at all depends on where you are born, right? At this point, the federal government does not, it, it does not intervene. You know, they're nowhere to be found. When they start getting to secondary school, then the federal government starts to get involved. So you have things like unity schools, for example. You know, at that point, if you if you make it out of primary school, you get into a unit school, then you start to receive some federal government stuff. And then if you make it out of secondary school, then you are far more likely, at least up until recently anyway, you then get into a federal university, you know, at that point. Or maybe you get into a state university. Well, in some cases, maybe, you know, it's the responsibility of the state. But say you get into a federal university or also, again, even at the university level, it's still 50-50. You could be state or you could be federal. When you get to NYSC, that is when you are 100% federal, right? Now, Think about it. You know, one of the things I discovered when I was researching this some time ago is that there are drop-off points in Nigerian education, right? So somebody gets in, they get into primary school. The first big drop-off point is obviously the end of primary school, so primary six, right? So say 10 kids get into uh, primary school, by primary six, probably say three have dropped off. They go and start working or something, depending on where they live again. But the next big drop-off point, and this is probably the biggest drop-off point in Nigerian education, is GSS-3. You know, we have this GSS and SSS thing whereby you have to actually do an exam to move on to the senior secondary school. That junior secondary level, by that point, at least half of the kids who entered primary school in primary one have dropped off. They don't get into secondary school at all. Now, obviously, another set drops off at the end of secondary school. You know, many don't go into university. Our university can simply not take all the kids who want to get into university. It's just not possible. You know, we don't have enough spaces, right? So it's like Hunger Games, right? So you make it out of primary school, you survive drop-off point one, primary six, well done. You then make it up to GSS3, you somehow survive that, well done. You survive SS3, you actually get into university, and then at that point, then the federal government now says, ah, well done, you survived all these drop-off points, so we're going to give you NYSC. Now, at that point in time, whatever damage has been done, like you know, like we said earlier, you know, this variability across Nigeria, the government is basically taking somebody who had an education in a really bad state and somebody who had a decent education in a really good state and just treating them as the same and then sending them back. You know, again, the question here is that we need to be able to standardize and 
reduce this variability. You know, so if we want to train teachers, it's not that hard anymore, actually. It's not as difficult as it used to be. You can actually get teachers to a standard level, a decent level in six months to 12 months. There are all kinds of programs around the world. So if, if somebody wants to say, look, we want one million teachers, we want them to be able to get down to the lowest level and to give kids a basic level of education that can bring them up to a certain level such that we are guaranteed that their floor is raised so that they can go through the education system. They don't have to drop off. But then by the time they even get to university, we are confident that they have those basic skills. If we want to train 1 million teachers today and say we want to bring 1 million teachers, you don't really need to do NYSC. You, you can just train 1 million teachers and the federal government can do it. You, you, the technology, there's all kinds of stuff available. So you can do it as a standalone project, regardless of whether NYSC or not, and just basically have the standing army of teachers that we want to get down to the grassroots level, raise the floor of our human capital with the kids, and then guarantee that we have a much better pipeline coming through. Look, I went to a Nigerian university, right? I have seen people who are in 200 level, year two, year three, who could not spell money, who could not write a sentence. Again, this variability. I was lucky because, I mean, I went to, it says, I mean, my mom was in the military, so I went to, to an air force school and we got a really good education. But how many people got that? You know, it's very, very variable. So at the end of the day, I, who managed to get a really decent education through the Air Force, was locked in. I was in the same class with people who could not spell a very simple word, who could not write a sentence. We were in university together. So at that point, is that both of us graduated. Maybe, you know, we then become NYC people. The government now throws us out to go and educate people. What I'll be able to educate somebody is not the same thing as somebody who can't spell money will be able to educate. So to answer your question, what we need to do is to basically forget about the NYC, but do it as a standalone project on its own, whereby, say, we want to raise one million teachers, and those teachers are going to go to the very grassroots level and start to improve the pipeline of people coming through our education system so that we are guaranteed a certain level. You know, I, th I think that's the way we have to do it. Otherwise, if we say we want to use things like the NYSE, because of that wide variability across the country, we're just going to be caught in a, in a vicious cycle. Thanks, Ray. Your point on commodity and what we export is actually quite ominous. I recall reading a paper a couple of years ago by two economic historians who compiled a lot of colonial, even pre-colonial export data, and it still pretty much correlates with structure of uh, modern economies today. So, but that being said, you talked about the end of oil and how we are not really preparing for that and how the next president, whoever they are, might just like, you know, find the next oil in quotes. But on the flip side, you have people who would then say, oh, yeah, because we don't make things, we've become too dependent on natural resource exports. We are not going to export anything at all, you know, export ban. I know Kingsley Mogaru has talked about a lithium ban in Africa because we should start making our own batteries and probably our own EVs here, you know, and other weird ideas like that. But as Andrew Nevin also said on the show, the government currently has FX shortage, you know. So what I'm trying to get at is how do you balance the incentives, especially we are talking ballots and beyond, right? The next guy that gets the job, how do you balance the incentives of both this short-term temptation and, you know, long-term objectives, things that you have to do to move into the future as a country? And my second question, 
we are talking about education. Also, Andrew Nevin sort of made the point that states, you know, should be responsible for their own developments. But you are making a, a sort of countervailing point to that, that there are some things that need federal implementation, you know, given the nature of the problem, which will then bring up inevitably one of your favorite subjects, at least when it concerns the Nigerian economy, which is the budget, right? I think it was also you in the past that has called our budget a work of fiction, right? And when you look at where we are today, you know, the ability to make any kind of public investment to tackle some of these problems that you've talked about is very limited, right? So in terms of incentives and of also the fiscal constraint, what do you see as like the quick wins or the room for the next president to make an impact? Right. That question about, you know, banning exports of resources is, I mean, you know my views, I will have an instinctive rejection of that. But we have an example from Indonesia, right? Um, a few years ago, obviously, Joko Widodo, he, he banned the export of certain minerals from Indonesia. Obviously, I thought uh, that was a silly idea at the time, but it's worked. Now, the reason it's worked is you have to be able to know where you are as a country and have clear ideas of where you want to get to. Looking back now, with the benefit of hindsight, what he did was basically, look, we want to do some value add in Indonesia. That's what he wanted. For example, say they had lithium. You know, he didn't say we want to make electric vehicles because we have lithium, then we must make the electric vehicles in Indonesia. What he wanted was basically, let's say there's a three-stage process, for example, say you dig out the lithium, say you polish it and wash it or whatever, and then you package it and then export it then he then gets into cars and all that. I think what he aimed for was that middle of the road. He basically aimed for the next step, right? So the next step beyond just exporting stuff, you know, out of the country. He wanted to capture that value in Indonesia. And it's worked, you know? Now they've done that, then they can move on to the next step. You know, I always talk about, like, Nigeria's cement policy, for example. We never set any targets for what we wanted to achieve out of cement. Right, say, okay, we just wanted to make cement in Nigeria. But imagine if our cement policy was actually tied to saying we needed to build 100,000 homes a year or something to keep that policy justified. Because at the end of the day, what is cement? It's not something you can drink. You can't eat it. It's an input that goes into something else. So imagine if we had actually tied the cement policy outcome to the production. So you can use cement to build infrastructure, for example, say, okay, we want to have more concrete roads or more bridges or something, that kind of thing. But what we just did was just a cement ban, you know, and now we produce so much cement in the country, but really, at what cost? If we had tied it to a specific outcome, for example, then the cost question would have raised its head. So I think in the first, we have to be able to think critically about, you know, if we want to resist those short-term temptations, what is the next step? What is the logical next step? You find something, say you just find something under the floor in Nigeria, and we're trying to fight being a commodity player. Don't just say, oh, we're just buying that thing. I mean, that thing might have several stages it goes through before it becomes a final product that's actually useful to people. What part of that do we want to at least start to capture in the country, right? And, you know, we're not Indonesia because, again, we have to look at ourselves. Indonesia is a country that raises billions of dollars because they are hajj. Just think about their hajj system, for example. In Nigeria, we subsidize hajj. 
in Indonesia is, is an investment. People start to save money over a long time. So they have a hedge fund. That hedge fund has tens of billions of dollars in it. People have been saving over time because they want to go to hedge, you know, and it's run like a proper fund. And that was one of the first things that Jokowi used when he became president to do a lot of his infrastructure build out, you know, all those bridges and airports and the base. That hedge fund, because it's a long-term fund, people start saving for it for a long time. You know, another thing in Indonesia is that if you look at the difference between them and us, when it comes to life insurance, the amount of uh, premiums they can raise uh, in a year for life, it's like worlds apart. We are nowhere near them when it comes to the amount of premiums that they're life insurance. And again, this is another source of long-term funding. You know, so domestically, they are able to mobilize funding to a certain degree that Nigeria can really dream of. So again, we cannot just copy their policies willy-nilly. So we have to think about, I mean, if you have a commodity, what is the next step that we can capture? And once you've achieved that, you know, set yourself realistic targets and then move to the next. So for me personally, I think that's the only way we can resist the temptation in the sense that we have to think realistically about where we are as a country. Don't take any knee-jerk decisions. But like I used to say, you know, when we had the whole auto policy debate, I, I say that, look, if you want to do innocent, if you want to say push innocent as a champion, you are not going to do it by blocking imports or forcing local companies or local government agencies or whatever to buy the product. You need a kind of feedback that you cannot control. And the best option would be have a policy of exporting innocent to other African countries. Start from there. The feedback will come quickly. You know, and I always use the example of Korea back then when uh, General Park decided that they wanted to start exporting cars, right? I mean, he called the meeting, really, effectively. And the guy who was um, Hyundai, the, the founder of Hyundai, he just came back. You know, he came back to his manager, who was a British guy, um, have agreed with the president to export maybe, I don't know, say something like 7,000 cars a year. And the guy, his manager, the British guy said, are you insane? There's no way we can do that. How are we going to, who are we even going to export these Korean cars to? And the founder was like, look, I agree to you because if I don't meet that export, he's going to jail me. So they then came up with a plan to start exporting these cars. And the cars were so bad. But Nigeria was one of the places they exported them to because they were cheap. And one of the feedback they got was that it was so bad. They said in Nigeria, the first time somebody took it to a car wash, the color completely changed. Or somebody was actually washing the car and the roof came off. You know, But that kind of feedback, they were able to quickly and quickly iterate and improve the cars. But if you are making a car in Nigeria, then you ban import of cars and then you say, all oh, government agencies will buy a car. What happens? If the car is not good, what else? How does Innocent improve? How does any local uh, manufacturer? So we have to think about, again, this is kind of like the next step. So if you want to make a car in Nigeria, all well and good, but you need to be able to have a way to get the kind of feedback, brutal feedback, that will improve you. You know, So resistance intervention, you know, understanding where you are as a country, understanding what is the next logical step. You might not really be able to jump steps like you think you can, you know, but move on to the next step. If we have a mineral in Nigeria today, what is the next step of value that we can capture rather than just exporting it in its raw form? And then invest in that area and then see where it takes you. We are walking into a situation whereby because of the last eight years, the amount of borrowing, you know, the government spending way beyond anything it earns, you know, and you mentioned earlier, you know, at the start about how oil is pretty much done for us, you know. We don't really understand how much the next president has that in the sense that every single cover of revenue in Nigeria today is spoken for 
20. Yes. You know, so you look at the 2023 budget that was put out, the government plans to spend 20 trillion. And what's the deficit then? Uh, and the deficit is about or close to 11 trillion, right? So with optimistic revenue projections of 9 trillion to fund that. Whoever is coming into office, there's not a pot of money that they're going to meet and be able to say, oh, there's literally no discretionary spending. We run the risk of electing a president if the president cannot really do some bold reforms and tackle some bold ideas. The person will just go into office and will just be the person signing off payments to our creditors and signing off payments for salaries and not be able to do anything else. So it's a big challenge. I think a lot of people have not talked about and we really need to think about that. The next president is entering office with their hands tied. How they break free of those handcuffs is going to be determined by the quality of ideas and the boldness of the reforms that they're able to do. Do you really think so? Because we've asked one of them for our previous guests, which is like, that was the crux of the discussion, which is like, who would want this job, right? Exactly. I, I was going to ask the same thing, like... Who would want this job, right? Not like being president is pretty sweet, right? But the only opportunities you're going to have really are to specifically enrich the people around you with mm-hmm. the few morsels that are always at the disposal of the president, right? The idea of funding any large scale change, as you point out, it seems, you know, our budgets have gone from 7 trillion to 23 trillion over eight years or something. Our deficits, you know, have gone from 1.7 trillion to, you know, 12 trillion. And this is not even including this $50 billion ways and means securitized fund that is supposed to now become part of our formal debt burden, right? Like the current administration is leaving for whoever comes next an unsustainable fiscal position. So like who on earth would want this job? Exactly. Take the example of what I talked about earlier. Say say we wanted to train 1 million teachers and wanted to raise the floor of our human capital. There is nowhere in the Nigerian government's fiscal capacity that it can do something like that on its own. No way. No chance. They cannot raise the funding. They cannot raise the expertise. That kind of thing. What can be done, however, is if you have a leader who can mobilize the resources from somewhere, and typically out of Nigeria, you know, there are people who will give you the money. To use a practical example, something I've talked about recently, Indonesia, a few years ago, they had a palm oil plantation fire. And uh, these fires happen all the time. I mean, people in Singapore talk about it all the time, whereby once they start clearing bushes to plant palm trees in Indonesia, the fog actually wafts over to Singapore and you know messes up a lot of all the countries around them, right? Now, so these fires happen quite a lot. You know, it's almost kind of like normal power life. But a few years ago, it got out of hand and it was so bad. I mean, the fires got out of hand beyond what anyone intended. And then you had a situation whereby if memory serves, the number I saw was about 200,000 Indonesians landed in hospital as a result of inhaling all these kind of fires and all this kind of, and it just caused so much damage. Now, Jokowi saw this as an opportunity and he basically took on the local palm oil lobby and pushed through some very, very difficult environmental reforms. And he used his position himself internationally as a clean energy guy, you know, an environmental guy. You know, a guy who is concerned about the environment. Now, just Google, you see, and now you start to see all kinds of investments are pouring into Indonesia. They've been able to mobilize a couple of billion dollars to, to aid their transition. Timmy? Um, you know how it is, like, um, I am kind of like nature red in tooth and claw when it comes to the economy. And again, I always wonder if I'm naive. I worry that 
the present crop of presidential thinking and of the rule of the state, that the state should direct the direction of Nigerian economic growth and Nigerian development. It was fascinating actually listening to you describe step by step up until university education process. But then I don't know how that fits in with one's idea about increased decentralization and federalism. So it's something that I'm actually thinking about, because one of the nice things I hope about this podcast series is that I would hope that people listen to people like Faye speak and actually start to rethink some of their own fixed ideas. Because if you ask me, I'd say, well, state and local governments are in charge of primary education. If it's not getting us what we need, maybe we need someone with a different plan or at least who is willing, as you said, to exhibit what you say is the primary presidential attribute, which is curiosity. One, thanking you, thanking uh, Mr. Faye me very much for his time. He is a Twitter impresario. You can find him at Double F. He's also, most importantly, the co-author of a book, and it's called Formation. And it is actually one of the best resources and best histories of Nigeria up until the real formation of the country into its present form that you're ever going to find. You know, if you've ever heard of Usman Danfodio and wondered what exactly that is or how that is or how that affects the current emirates and sultanates that still impact upon Nigerian business and economics and policy today and politics, importantly. It's an excellent resource. I would heartily recommend going on and buying the book. I will put a link in the show notes. There's a foundation podcast of about eight episodes, I think, that I would heartily recommend that people who are thinking in any way about Nigeria retrospectively listen to Picking Fuller and Faye's brains, or at least listening to them talk about the formation of Nigeria, explains kind of why they are so well qualified and well equipped to talk about the future of Nigeria as people who have thought so deeply about its past. Again, I really want to thank you a great deal, Faye, for making time. Um,